Welcome to the Pessimist Guide to a Hopeful Future, a podcast about serious stuff hosted by someone trying to take things less seriously. I'm Chris Kenworthy, I'm a coach, and I'm curious about different ways to frame the ongoing botched experiment that is humanity. Every episode I'll interview someone I think will intrigue you, usually a leader, a thinker, or a doer in social and environmental circles, and then I clumsily interrogate them on how they relate to the world, all the while trying to relax and not be Mr. Sensible Podcast Bore. Whatever happens next, I promise you, you'll hear at least one interesting person persuading us whether there's a future worth hoping for or not. Let's find out, shall we? Today, we've got Mike Chitty, who's a leadership guru, facilitator, consultant, and a prolific podcaster of uh, Be A Better Leader podcast. I met him through Progress School, where I came to admire how open and reassuring he is. And how he just isn't a know-it-all or advice giver in any way. He's a great storyteller and collector as well. I said to him once, um, Mike, every time we speak, another part of me dies, which I actually meant as a compliment in a good way because he kind of takes you to the edge of what you know and encourages you to question even like the way you think. And that's good because I'm on this journey of killing my own inner expert, know-it-all, analyst-type person. So he's someone wise, like Mike, to sort of light the way and helps to question my constant attempts to um, make sense of everything when maybe that's that's not always possible or relevant. Check out his podcast, Be A Better Leader, and uh, I hope you enjoy the interview with Mike Chitty. I was trying to think of an analogy, the trite idea of like an iceberg. At the surface, you've got this sort of debate about how we handle social environmental challenges the kind we're all faced with now is with pessimism or optimism that's the sort of shallow title of it but beneath it as i've had more conversations i mean you're number five now i'm number five you're season one though mike you're season one <laughs> but beneath the surface of the iceberg there's this thing going on with uncertainty in the future and personal philosophies and worldviews and how it helps us cope and how it helps us affect change at the core of it is trying to find this nice balance of of humor but pragmatism mm -hmm. let's start shall we I'll, I'll try and work some questions but i'll i'm also mindful that we should we should let the conversation flow you call yourself a bookish theoretician in your twitter profile i didn't quite understand what that meant until you said something recently on one of your podcast interviews you said i read books then tend to rewrite them in my own words in my head does that equate to this idea of being a bookish theoretician you think that, that came up because i got a bit of feedback from a piece of work that i didn't get the bit of feedback was they thought you were a bookish theoretician oh yeah i quite like the fact that at least my practice is grounded in something so i, I, I just sort of popped it in there for a bit of a joke really but it also did get me really thinking because i suppose my practice starts with theory starts with a hypothesis that something might be helpful an idea a concept or a theory and then i kind of try and bring that into a different reality i suppose into a, into a field that's mainly about practice and i suppose one of the ways i've made a living is people are too busy running organizations and running teams and running businesses to actually stop and read and reflect and think so i sometimes am able to spend a bit of time with them hear what they're hear what's going on so yeah i, I mean it's interesting I, it's one of the things i'm working on changing is that i do tend to have my quarry of ideas behind me that i can pull off the shelf or and then i try to leave them on the shelf until i'm really sure it's the right thing does this relate back to your training as a physicist there's a little bit of that in it but it's evolving quite quickly so the scientific approach would tend to be very sort of logical positivist following the nose following the rationale um the way i was taught physics it was all about that but then when you look at what the greatest physicists do you know the einsteins the feynman's you know it's pure imagination it's pure, pure creativity what's it like to cross the universe sat on the end of a light beam and again, with David, I was starting to talk about things like, in fact, the reason we had the conversation was uh, I was using words like grace, allowing grace into the process, allowing mystery in. And uh, he was very keen to see what I meant by that, which was a bit embarrassing because I wasn't really sure. <laughs> I've had that here as well. Someone asked you a question. You go, do you know what? I've not actually thought what my position is on this. I'm here. I am asking you your position, but I don't know mine. Also, um, getting really, really comfortable with saying, well, I don't know. So, because so, when you don't know, you're admitting that field of non-concepts. I, I think that's a fascinating line of thought, but I think just to even say that, you know what, I don't know, that sort of embraces uncertainty at a level that I'm sort of fascinated, but also slightly aghast at in a way. We're talking about authenticity. It's a very vulnerable thing to say is I don't know. To say I don't know, I think it's a statement of certainty rather than uncertainty. 
To claim knowledge is perhaps a more uncertain position. To claim understanding, yes, I understand, that now admits a whole lot of uncertainty. And, and in, in the physicist sense, uncertainty is, well, you don't know until you measure, and when you measure, you don't know. I guess on a personal point, let's take it back to Mike Chitty, shall we? You don't have any issues with that, just admitting your ignorance, lack of knowledge. I think I have massive issues. So when I left university, I said, I thought enough of that, you know, enough of people sitting in judgment over what I know, teaching me what they think is important. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to read and I'm going to educate myself and I'm going to be much more self-directed in my learning. You know, no, no more academia for me. Um, so I then spent 40 years reading books, probably more non-fiction than fiction. Uh, lots of stuff around coaching, change theory, systems transformation, complex adaptive, you know, all the normal curriculum that, that, that we read, although not many of our profession do a whole lot of reading i don't think you know they kind of latch onto a couple of blog posts and they're off yeah there's a low, low barrier to entry in coaching isn't there but carry on there is yeah. a very low barrier to entry chris the whole world has been flooded with cheapskate coaches no no and actually now i'm gonna well gonna try and think why that might be so i've been amassing knowledge amassing knowledge amassing knowledge becoming a bookish theoretician and then i came across this metaphor that said uh, knowledge is like the island that we stand on and each time we add a bit more knowledge to the island, our island gets a little bit bigger. But then the boundaries between what we know and what we don't know also get bigger. You know, the perimeter where what we know butts up against what we don't know just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, what that means really, so I suppose, you know, you're still on the island of concepts in a sea of non-concepts and you're never going to get enough of the sea reclaimed. In fact, if anything, you know, <laughs> with climate change, that sea level's rising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All of that knowledge you're stood on is uncertain and shifting. And then you have to, I think, really reappraise the value of all of that knowledge, all of that stuff that you spent 40 years stacking up. And it's funny because I went through a period of thinking, probably in the three or four years before lockdown, when I was at my most successful, you know, if you look at the invoicing and the feedback and the order book and you know you know i was just beginning to think well maybe all that reading's paying off actually you know maybe i was right and then i stopped to do some thinking and realized exactly the opposite everyone wants to believe that you're stood on an island of concepts and they can import your concepts and make the world right i don't think so do you i don't think that's the evidence there's something in here about the accumulation of knowledge and you eventually just accumulate so much you transcend it into the, into the, the realm of, of wisdom and I, I think that's how I see you as wise as in by virtue of the fact that you admitting how little you actually know with your experience and, and your age that you've become wise you know that, that <laughs> wise in your ignorance just it, it, me and my wife down here so she can hear this Chris <laughs> <laughs> so I've just started well just start to build some bridges with some academics that are researching wisdom um, sort of practical wisdom and sort of a bit Hogwarts to be honest <laughs> yeah. but it's interesting stuff there's a Rumi poem that's really hit me the, over the last again maybe five years Rumi the Persian poet of 1500 and something or other and he wrote about two kinds of intelligence and he says the first is bookish intelligence and he says it's hard to acquire it's hard to maintain you've got to really work at that but with this knowledge you can he says basically you can go up in the world uh, and then he says the second sort of knowledge he says it's written in a, on a different tablet it's written in a different book and he says, this, uh, this knowledge springs, springs forth from your soul, as it were. Uh, and the water never stagnates. It's always fresh. It's always bubbling up. And if you can learn to let that go, if you can learn to let that other knowledge of, of who you are in the world, of what you are in the world, of your participation in the world, if you kind of let that emanate, that's where mystery and joy and bliss and all that stuff emanates from. So I suppose really what I've spent a lot of time doing is developing the bookish knowledge. And then the last year or two, maybe a bit more, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe four or five years, I've been really working on that other form of knowledge. How do you let that out? And it's interesting. So vulnerability seems to me to be very much rooted in bookish theoretician stuff. You know, grounded field theory of Brené Brown. And I spoke to 200 managers about vulnerability. And I've got nothing against that. You know, I'm not decrying books. I'm not rubbishing them. Uh, but unless they're alloyed with something genuinely more than your bookish knowledge, it's, uh, it's, it's a sham. It's pretty shambolic. It's, vulnerability is an interesting, you know, which leaves you most vulnerable. Is it the pretense of invulnerability and knowing all? You know, I've got my eight step model, Chris, and it'll make you all all right. That appears to make me uh, invulnerable. You know, I can sell that eight step model. I can write books on it. I can fill my bank account with it. I know it doesn't work. Probably you know it doesn't work because it doesn't admit mystery. It doesn't admit surprise. It doesn't admit chaos, uncertainty. 
So it's like your, your bookish the theorizing has led you to the conclusion that this means nothing unless it's about, I don't know, what, liberating a person from themselves or being the best version of themselves, being freer to, you know, th th tapping into their unique thing. So I think there's a paradox here. There's both tapping into your unique thing. So what is it that Chris Kenworthy's life has, has prepared him for now? And again, you know, it's funny, we started the conversation by saying what a difference 24 hours makes. Um, you know, by tomorrow, you'll be prepared for something slightly differently. And so, so I think the first thing is we're all processes in development and we don't acknowledge that. So, you know, I think Chris Kenworthy, you know, probably 90% of my perception of you is still based on when we first met, whenever it was. Mm. Because what we can't be asked to do is keep up with the development of Chris Kenworthy. I can't be asked keeping up with the development of Chris Kenworthy, mate. <laughs> well, it's too difficult, isn't it? You know, yeah. like, like I've been married to Anne for 40 years and I'm still in love with the girl I married. If Probably if we went back and said, so what have you become now? I'd be like, well, even, even our own unique contributions and what we're capable of are changing frequently. If you took the purest in me, I'd say every millisecond, something's changing to shift potentials. It's that bit about emerging process that we can't keep up with and our uniqueness. And the paradox that the other side of that is actually, for me, it's this recognition that I don't have a life that's unique. I participate in a stream of life, energy, matter, life, death. Uh, you participate in the same thing. You don't have it. I don't have it. And that's been quite a profound uh, realisation for me. And I think it's part of me trying to get, starting to come to terms with mortality. Do I lose my life? <laughs> I think you need to add mystic on the end, bookish theoretician and mystic, amateur mystic, maybe. You know, I'm definitely, I'm definitely getting much more interested in how we can admit the mystic and, and imagination and creativity. I, I, read, I read a quote ages ago in one of these books that I theorised from, and it just asked the question of, of, are they really thinking or are they just following the logic? You know, because to follow the logic, to do the maths and to come up with the answer, that's one thing. To really think, to really imagine, and then to have the ability to work with that imagination to bring it into the world. You know, it's like the pottery throwdown thing. It's one thing when they can see this brilliant creation in their heads. If they can't make it, they can't survive the kiln. <laughs> I, I just want to just, just go a bit meta here, Mike, because you, you did it twice then. I don't know whether you realise this, but like when you want to illustrate a theory, you seemingly are able to pluck stories and characters out of the air. You spoke about, was it Rumi, the, this Persian poet? Now, yeah. This was something I observed probably about your teaching style is that you're able to pluck or these tales out of the air to illustrate a point. You know, you brought up the character of the poet and you brought out where he was from and he said this and he said that. That seemed is that something you've deliberately learned how to do, or do you think that's intrinsic in the way you teach? Because it, it's it's a really effective device for illustrating a point. Uh, well, that's really interesting because I'd be lying if I didn't say that I'd read a lot of the literature on, on influence and authority, and I don't see it as a device. You know, I don't think, oh, crikey, if I don't put in an academic reference or a poetry reference or an art reference, now Chris is going to start to lose the thread. I mean, who knows, who knows where it comes from? It's intrinsic, right? Yeah, there's only, one, there's only one model that I have kind of in the front of my head as I'm going through development processes, and that's, do I need to encourage this person to get it all out, to throw it all up, I call it the vomiting phase. Get it all up, like a cat with a hairball. <laughs> tell me more, Chris. Tell me more about your pain and your suffering and your agony and your hopes and your dreams and your, you know, tell me about all of it. You know, the rash on your bum. Get it all out. Careful what you wish for. Go on. <laughs> so that's acceptance. Uh, and, and I try and be warm and friendly and safe and create the environment where they can throw it all up on the table. Then catalytic, sort it into piles. Also, it's really the rash on your bum that you want to talk about, Chris. You need to go to the doctor for that, not me. You know, um, so, so sorting it out, sorting these issues out into piles so that they become a bit more structured and manageable. Confrontation. Chris, you've been blithering on for years about wanting to change. You've not changed, mate. I'm beginning to think you're all mouth and no trousers. Whoa, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, so confrontation. When do I need to confront and challenge someone and provoke them? And then the final thing would be prescription, which is, Chris, for goodness sakes, go to the doctor. Just do it. And yeah, the thing that I like about that is all four of those styles. You know, if I'm going to be accepting, I've got to be gentle, Mike, lean back in my chair, receptive. Or if I'm going to be prescriptive, Mike, it's go, get to the doctors, you know. Rah! But that's the only kind of model that, I, that I'll consciously go to when I'm, when I'm working with a client, as it were. Uh, having said that, I never go to that model when I'm working 
with when it's not a paid gig. <laughs> this is the problem with models, though, isn't it? They go out the window and you start dealing with human beings. <laughs> Most of my clients are human beings, and I do find the models helpful there. But I'm interested in why. I'm interested in why would I apply them in my professional life, but 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 less so in my personal life. And I suppose it's not true to say I've never applied them in my personal life. And I'm worrying then if it's about if it's about a defense a defense against the risk of being found out. Mike, what have you been doing with us? You know, you've been working with us for a year and we seem to be in as big a mess as we ever were. Oh, well, I've been applying this theory, this model, this framework, and this, you know, so actually what we've been doing is all the right stuff. Maybe not in all the right order, but all the right stuff. So it's interesting uh, that, I've, that I, you know, I do ground that part of my life in, in theory. It's probably in some ethical code that I signed up to years ago as well that I would only do evidence-based practice or something. Isn't that interesting? I'd never, never thought about that before. Is it, is it preparation? Because I've been really interested in preparation and presence, like the, the, the balance between the two, perhaps, or how you flip between the two, as in to what degree do you prepare and make sure you've got all your models ready and your theory and your evidence before you then start embarking on an adventure with a new coaching client or whatever. You, you need to do the preparation. But for me personally, I over-prepare and get so dogmatic about leaning on all the, the proper way, the preparation, that I, I end up not really being in the room and in the conversation, you know? This might be a generational thing. I mean, I kind of learned to coach, I think, before there were any coaching frameworks. There was coaching theory around. I remember reading um, Whitmore's work in the early days, the inner game of golf and that sort of stuff. And so there was some stuff around, but but it wasn't as codified as it was now. There weren't really coaching courses to go on. So I just kind of figured it out, really. I suppose 25 years ago, I had a very limited number of models and theories to draw on, and i probably drawn them much more explicitly. Mm. Now I've got a much bigger sort of, bank of resources. The preparation now is much less about preparing the models and the theories than it is to say, do I really want to help this person? Am I really okay with this bit of work? And I have to do that sometimes because sometimes I'd say, actually, I'm not okay with this bit of work, but the bank balance isn't okay either. So get in there and then you have to do the work on just getting into that, you know, the unconditional positive regard space. And again, that's been a lot easier since working on some of the roomy second kind of intelligence. You know, the intelligence that accepts the world the way it is not the way you want it to be and recognizes that there's perfection in that too and there's beauty in that too and uh, sally mustovich who um, who also did a brilliant podcast with me I, I don't know if you listen to sally's one i mean i just, just love that one too she asked me these bloody questions that just do my head in she quoted that david white poem to me that says you know i'm going to mangle it now but it's it's essentially all of us have a great shout of joy inside us and so I'll be, I'll be moaning to her about how awful this bloody client is. She'll say, yeah, but they've got a great shout of joy in them as well. And your job is to get it out. And I love that idea. Because mm. a lot of people are stuck in really joyless jobs at the moment. And even the jobs that should be giving great joy, like uh, the, you know, the area I'm working in, nursing. You know, the joy of helping people recover when they're ill or die well when they cannot recover. You know, the deep joy that should be found in that work as a human being doing good work for other human beings, that joy should be overwhelming. You ask nurses when they last found joy at work, you know, for many of them, it won't be at that metaphysical level. You know, um, uh, it's just become a slog. It's become a technocratic slog. And that, for me, is because the bureaucrats and the technocrats and the logical positivists have made everything brutally efficient and technocratic and evidence-based. And because there's no evidence for love and care and being human, that's somehow got squeezed out of the process. And then, because there is a little bit of evidence, we just can't quantify it. It's like, oh, can you be more compassionate at the same time as you're delivering your seven-minute home visit? Let's let's talk about this because you you've got a special interest, haven't you, in, in inequality, diversity, in health and social care. That's sort of your. Well, I'm not an expert in it. No, no, but. It's the cause, though. It's the cause that you you champion, right? I would never say that I'm the standard bearer marching at the front. I believe it's really important. I believe that where I can agitate around it, I'll agitate around it. There are people that have spent their lives and their careers learning about the subject. I haven't done that. It's funny, I, I started probably a year or three back trying to understand where my, where my sense of the importance of this was coming from. And I don't think I've still fully cracked it. But, you know, I, I don't like words like champion or I'm certainly not an expert. I mean, I care deeply about it. The question isn't around so much the semantics of that. Let's just look at that 
area of all these societal environmental problems. I mean, on the on the theme of pessimism and optimism and how you treat it, I guess I'm interested in, I mean, you must really despair that we're still having the same cyclical discussions and debates about this very subject. I mean, you must find it so dispirited when it's so obvious and self-evident that equality and more equality is a, is a good thing and more diversity is a good thing. And we're still having these endless tiresome debates about the same old problems. I suppose the the first type of knowledge, the bookish theoretician would despair. The second type of knowledge, the bubbling up from within, doesn't despair. Um, I suppose it's because of the acceptance that that it's still perfect. You know, the, the inequality is here to teach us something and we're still learning. I, I mean, it is frustrating. Just this weekend, you know, I was having a little Twitter conversation with the nurse who'd set up, you know, flexible NHS, so what we need is more flexible working practices. Now, I remember when we had our kids 30 years ago, the NHS was working on family-friendly policies. The rhetoric was beautiful. It lasted for about you know six months, and then it all went to hell in a handcart because there were dying patients who needed care, and there weren't enough nurses. You know, uh, yeah. I remember doing a bit of work in Pontefract in the uh, probably late eighties, early nineties, and the NHS was saying even if we recruited every single school leaver in our patch, we wouldn't have enough nurses to staff our hospitals. <laughs> I'm going, what? <laughs> that can't be right. And you know, anyway. So yeah, these problems have been persistent and ongoing. Well, we have made some difference and things are better than they were. You know, if you look at the broad sweep of time, people are dying less often from miserable illnesses in pain and agony than they were. So, you know, we're heading in the right direction. It's just frustratingly slow. I think that fundamentally, the ethical underpinning of our approaches to care are, are broken. You know, all of these, all of these accountants doing all of these measurements around separate products and services and um, separate patient groups and you know how do we sort out oh this group's falling behind what do they need that group's falling behind what do they need this group's falling behind what do they need you know this rather than reflecting back and saying what are the ways in which we are creating inequalities and allowing groups to fall behind instead of really owning our own racism classism sexism ableism <laughs> you know you name it ism saying ah actually the reason it's falling behind is because we want an efficient health service and therefore, people that are going to cost more fall by the wayside. That's brutal. And then because of that, we get a lot of illness that costs us a lot of money. And so of our 130 billion, probably about 70 billion of it is spent on dealing with the consequences of not getting care right. There's something you said there about your outlook on this. These problems are here to teach us something you said. I don't want to let that one slide by, Mike. It's completely not the way I think. But you do, and I'm curious about it. Come on, tell me about that. We could look at almost any aspects of inequality and... We can look at almost anyone's reaction to that. I suppose it could go from, well, they deserve it, it serves them right, they're a plague, you know, the kind of one end of the spectrum, through to, oh my goodness, how can we contemplate living with that on this planet? It's awful, and, you know, everywhere in between. And then there's my own stance on it. When I look at it and know how I react or sense how I react or try and explore how I react, and then I look at how others, probably literally to my left and my right, are reacting, um, what a rich, what a rich space in which to learn, what a rich space in which to think and explore. The difficulty with that is that some poor bugger is paying an enormous price for our learning, and they participate in the same process of life that I do. So I am paying a price too. You know, we're all paying that price. You know, they're contributing differently. I suppose. I don't know if that makes any sense. But you know, bloody hell, if life was perfect, Chris, if there were no inequalities and life was perfect, and you were living in a permanent heaven, wouldn't life be dull? You know, your favourite sports team won every time. Every time you went for a run, it was just perfect. You know, it's the pains, the aches, and the pains, and the suffering that teaches about ourselves, about the world. I know we've got a shared love of talking heads, Mike. I was just in mind of heaven by talking heads you know that the, the guy who dies he's up there and he's just saying oh, it's the same party over and over again god it's boring but um <laughs> well i was going to say and, and um you know for those of us with lots and lots of privilege that's what lockdown's been a bit like it's the same party day, day after day i've been saying you know it's almost a ritual what are you doing today Anne? oh we'll get up we'll walk the dogs we'll have lunch about 12 and you know what it probably is bloody heaven I was just going to ask about, you've put a in really interesting spin on learning there. I mean, I'm realising this through my practice of coaching, what, what, what learning can do. But learning for me, until very recently in life, was probably just something you did academically because you ought to and you read a book to have some casual interest. But you put a real life and death spin on learning there in the context of health and social care. And, you know, some people are paying a heavy price for us not learning and that kind of thing that's that's you've added some real gravity to the to the process of learning i suppose it depends what the ambition for the learning is you know if it's if it's alleviate suffering and pain which is part of what the nhs claims to be about then that's what we need to learn i've been quite influenced by some of the thoughts of people like spinoza that we get 
deep sense of joy and fulfillment from the alleviation of pain. Um, so I think there's a whole bunch of interesting ideas in that. But when you were talking, where I was, I mean, my big insight over the last couple of years have been, I used to learn so that I could understand. And now I learn. And the biggest hope I can have is that I deepen understanding. You know, I've given up on understanding. You know, understanding is an illusion. One plus one equals two. I understand that. It's an illusion, you know. It's a, this thing about all we have is experience, right, Chris? And yet we cannot trust our experience because what we experience is that field of non-concept. But the only part of it we can experience is the bit that our eyes can deal with the wavelength of. You know, I watched the Attenborough program last night. I was talking about animals that can see with polarised, they can see polarised light. They see the world differently. We all need to see the world like crabs, is that? Even one of those crabs would argue about the colour of cr crab's claw. They're the bloody crab. You know, I'd be saying that claw's blue. They'd be going, no, it's definitely black, mate. I see it as black, you know. We cannot trust our experience. So don't seek to understand. Don't seek to learn as a, as a process, as an endpoint. Seek to deepen understanding. And then I've extended that across to all sorts of areas of my life. So don't try and care. Deepen your care. Don't try and be kind. Deepen your, your kindness. Or extend kindness. I've been very interested in the idea of, well, how far can I extend my kindness? How far do I really extend my kindness? You know, geographically, is it is it more important, you know, if a kid at the bottom of the street has, has cut their knee than a kid the other side of the world has cut their knee? Why, why does proximity matter? Does race matter? Does gender matter? Does age matter? If an old person's suffering in a dementia care home, does that matter more than a young child suffering? Whose life's worth more? You know, how do I extend notions of kindness and understanding and in my own practice? And that's been you know, fundamental when it comes to learning, because you then give up on trying to understand anything, which lets you off the hook. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. So rather than learning being an endpoint, le I've learned now I understand this. It's, it's just an ongoing thing. It's just a process, a continual process of deepening and extending and never reaching an endpoint, because the more you learn, the more knowledge you accumulate, the, the less you know, really, and the, the wiser you become, perhaps. It's the more of your ignorance that's exposed to the erosion of the tides. I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you engage with other people and the way you do things. I've noticed on Twitter, Mike, that you're one of many people who post up provocative questions, you know, but you're one of the few people who actually engage in the responses that that then solicits rather than obviously just for the sake of being an influencer on, on Twitter. I'm just wondering what your intention is behind that and what kind of response you're getting from the, the Twitter sphere when you do that. Well, occasionally it's political. So I put one out this morning that said, uh, you know, there's that thing about, oh, well, the reason we're finding more variants of coronavirus is because we've got better science, better genomics. You know, that's why we're better at it. It's like, well, no, the reason we're finding more variants is because we've got open bloody borders all the way through this. You know? So I put out a tweet that just said, well, is it, you know, is it they've got better scientists or, better, or worse politicians? Uh, and that was a, you know, that was a, just a way to try and provoke some thinking, really. And, you know, I'm not really bothered about back as a result of that because i know what i think it is oh is it okay because i was gonna ask you, is there already a sort of an implied i sort of i've already made my mind up in this or you actually go in and go you know i don't i'm not actually sure is there a slight doubt in well i think the minority it's me being snarky most of it is me genuinely being puzzled so this idea that all we have is experience and we can't trust our experience then what can we trust you know, what is the thing that we can place our trust in? You know, that, that was a genuine wow moment. There's, there's a lot of thinking I'm doing at the moment about, about what happens when we listen and what we listen to and what we choose not to listen to. So how do I extend my listening? So can I, can I listen to the trees? I can listen to the birds, I can listen to the birds, but I'm not smart enough to know how the bird song's different this year to last year or this year to 20 years ago. So I can't, by listening, tell that there's been a decline of sparrows and starling. So that raises the question, can I, you know, I can hear, but I can't listen, I can't understand. And I've been putting lots of tweets about that, about trying to really understand what's happening when we're listening. And it's weird, because it is a bit metrically it's happening now. There are people that will say, when you listen to someone else, the person that's doing the talking learns nothing, because what they knew was already in them. So it's better to be the listener, because as the listener, you can learn some stuff. You don't know how lucky you are listening to me dribble on, because you can learn some stuff. I'm boring myself with this stuff that I've known for years. And that's not true. A good listener will help the speaker discover things in their thoughts, will allow things to well up that wouldn't have welled up without the good listener being there. So I'm getting really interested. And there's been a whole bunch of tweets I've put out over the last few months that have, have really been trying to inquire deeply into listening and get beyond the, the shallowness of, oh, we must all be good listeners. 
Well, we must also be good speakers. We must also be good reflectors. You know, there's so many things that we must deepen our practice in. Uh, but then you go back to being the bookish theoretician, trying to read all the books on that stuff. It's hard. Listening is incredibly, incredibly hard. It's one of the most difficult things. And I, I thought I've been told I'm a, a good listener, and there's sometimes someone can be talking, and you and you think something they said just phew, imagination went off here, and it, and then it came back down. And you have to catch up with yourself. It is one of the hardest things to do properly. So I think that's where I like a commitment to dialogue, because the commitment to dialogue says, hang on, when one of those fireworks goes off unexpectedly, <laughs> can, can we just stop? Can we just explore what happened? You know, what was that about? So I think, and I think that's really important to try and open up the space for that. 90% of my work probably is helping organisations recognise that the, the nicely fixed agendas and plans don't see the fireworks. We can't admit the fireworks because we've got, a, we've got a trajectory to hit, we've got a timeline to hit. And yeah, it's the fireworks that are where the mystery and the beauty are. Mike, let me ask you a question about this, right? So we, we got into a Twitter exchange recently about how we handle aspects of our character. Now, say one aspect of my character is a tendency to daydream and to firework goes off into the imagination. The, 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 the approach I took to that was, well, I need to embrace that part of my character and go, you know, that part of me who wants to imagine and dream, daydream all day, what a lovely thing that is. Come into the party, sit down, meet yourself at home, but please be quiet for the next hour because I've got a coaching yeah. session. But your, your, your sort of counterpoint to that was some guests at this internal dinner party, this mental sort of landscape that we call all our various competing urges and passions just deserve to be kicked out of the party because they're a pain in the ass. Now, maybe my little character is daydreaming all day needs to be ejected and leave because he's getting in the way of being present in conversations. This is, this is interesting because this is another theme I've been exploring lately. So there are some parts of our personalities, some parts of our ways of being, that we learn in the school playground or the nursery, you know, very early on in life, that served us well. Are they still serving us well? And if they're not serving us well, then maybe we can kill them off. We can eject them from the party. Because uh, that makes room for some other guests. You know, what would serve me now? It's funny, you know, when mum used to drag me up to Sunday school every Sunday morning and make me listen to religious stories and all that, you know, sacred wisdom stuff, that didn't serve me at all. I wanted to be playing football. Because it didn't serve me then, I didn't allow it in. It got rejected. That stuff can serve me much more now. I'm much more open to it, I'm much more likely to admit it. So I suppose there's something about the fact that we programmed our bouncers in this internal nightclub back when we were three or four or five or six or 10 or 11 or 12 or 15. And some of those bouncers haven't been retrained, Chris. <laughs> you know, we've not said to them, no, I know, I know it used to be, you know, no trainers and no T-shirts. But these days, you know. Um, and then I was, I've also been reading a lot of biology lately. And, um, you know, we think of the, the immune system as a defense system. Yeah, you know, it keeps out the baddies, doesn't it? And that's saying, well, actually now it's much more like a passport control system. So there's all sorts of bacteria and things that it actually lets in because it helps our guts flourish. It helps, you know, all sorts of, you know, we don't, we don't develop as humans unless those things come into us. If you grow a, I don't know if they've done the experiment on humans, because it's probably deeply unethical, but if you grow a mouse in sterile conditions, it doesn't become a functioning mouse. If the de definition of a mouse is 100% mouse with nothing else in it, that mouse is a poorly mouse. The mouse has to have in it bacteria and viruses and God knows what else to allow it to develop as a mouse. Um, you know, it's why messy play is so important. You eat your mud and you eat your earthworms because that helps you grow up as a strong kid. And um, you know, if you try and stop that happening, you grow up as a sickly kid. So this notion then that our defense systems are actually much more passport controls, they're much more discriminating what they allow it and what they keep out. And I was thinking, well, what about if we could be confident enough in our borders that we could welcome in anything? We could welcome in any idea and we could listen to it and we could play with it. And again, this is interesting with the no platforming debate that's going on in cancel culture. Is our democracy strong enough? You know, extreme right, extreme left ideas can be talked about and we can listen to them and we can draw sensible conclusions from them. Or is our culture so weak that we need passport control and Lord knows who's at barriers and Lord knows what they're being told to let in and let out can stand up there. Yeah, I'm very, very interested in, uh, in you know, when we talk about vulnerability, am I really willing to live with completely open borders, intellectually, spiritually, psychologically, physically? Am I prepared to do that?
we're getting into the mystic mystic here again. I sense the real talk of like we're letting go of the ego and just. Well, I, I suppose if I participate in life, yeah, it is about. I mean, I can see clear edges to you, Chris, and I could let that. I could cause that to think that Chris is a distinct object, separate from me, separate from his house, separate from that light. Or I can choose to see Chris as being an emanation, a little pattern that is that is emerging from exactly the same thing as the light in the house and me. And I know which one I've been socialised and encouraged to develop, which is Chris is a separate thing to be treated with, you know, care, love, suspicion, whatever. Whereas if I see Chris as just a part of the same thing that I'm a part of, an extension of me, you know, not just human kin, because I think there's as much non-human DNA in you as there is human. You know, we're, we're all of our mitochondria were bacteria once. And, you, you know, we are not these, you know, there's not this pure notion of, oh, well, we're human beings, of course. No, we're weird ecologies of all sorts of crap. I read a wonderful quote, you'll enjoy that. I'm reading a book called The Reed Warbler, which is about regenerative agriculture. And they talk about the water cycle and he says it's, it's it's Charles Massey, I think his name is, and he says that it's it's no accident that most of what we are is obviously water, but there's a slight salinity of it because saline water is obviously good for, for cells and cultures to grow in. And he says basically we're all walking around because we're just oceans, you know. We've created a micro ocean within ourselves for all this thing, all these things to to breed and swim around and evolve in. I thought that was really beautiful. I've never thought of myself as like, yeah, like a rock pool. <laughs> So what's interesting at the moment for me, you know, I was I was taught good old uh, uh, neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory. You know, human is at the top of the evolutionary ladder, slime molds and things right at the bottom of the evolutionary ladder, and you can place everything neatly up there. You know, dolphins and whales and other monkeys just beneath us, lucky things. You know, and so we can do that evolutionary ladder thing. It's a race to the top. Uh, there's a metaphor that you might come across in your coaching business now and again, and um, that uh, it's a competition. And it's survival of the fittest and the best. So you read all the books because that makes you fit for survival in this competing race. What the modern biologists are saying much more is if you look at the history of the evolution, yeah, sure, some of it is down to that sort of, you know, uh, um, the genetics of Mendel and Darwinian theory. But much more of it is down to symbiosis. You know, um, once every billion years, uh, a bacteria manages to, to engulf an algae and instead of digesting that algae and just smashing it up something happens that means it allows that algae to live in it so um so this notion that actually the way we make progress is not by protecting our borders and becoming the best that we can be the big evolutionary advances have been when we've opened our borders and said yeah come in come in mr bacteria set up home in the gut let's see how we get on i made that mistake in thailand mike it didn't end well it's for five days but yeah it's kind of a kill or cure thing chris you know, uh, you know vulnerability are you willing to take the risk you, you must have read kitchen confidential what's kitchen confidential i'll, I'll jot that down go on the bourdain book um he traveled the world eating all sorts of really really dubious stuff but he just loved his food he loved the whole experience and and his basic line was yeah you know i may have to spend three or four days sat on a toilet you know but it's worth it for the experience and he just had that whole, Anthony Bourdain had that whole thing of, of course there's a price to pay. Does that mean I'm never going to buy anything? You know, and it was like, now again, it didn't end well for Anthony. And, um, but what a life he had on the way. You know, if you're not ready to stuff, your kitchen confidential is, is great. And then uh, all of his cook's tours stuff. It's just, you can watch it in one perspective. It, it looks like a man's life unravelling very successfully unraveling jetting around the world staying in the best hotels eating the best food and the worst food you're just living life to the full and there's a price to be paid for it as well yeah but what's the alternative to not buying the ticket i want to leave that question hanging there let's let's see if we can make wrap this up and make sense of it i mean <laughs> <laughs> good luck yeah yeah i know what an urge that is to wrap this up and make sense of it you know, how do we package it so that it becomes consumable? I've got a condenser an hour down into a half hour of, uh, of wisdom and insight here, Mike. Um, I actually, no, I don't want answers. I don't want to package this up. I don't want to productize it. I just want it to be thought provoking. I guess this is the whole thing. I came into the, this podcast with this silly idea of, you know, pessimism or optimism. Now, you know, the, 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 the silly answer that would be, oh, it's a balance. So it's a nuance between the two. But I'm not sure. I'm, maybe I'm thinking it's both because... 
in your outlook and picking up this thing, you're saying things like, you know, everyone's here to teach us something. These problems, you know, what can I learn from this problem? It's an, an opportunity to, to, to learn something. And that, that, that sounds to me like abundance and, and positive thinking. That, that, that seems to be more your, your take on things rather than my default sort of cynicism and perhaps gallows humour about things. <laughs> well, I can do gallows humour. Uh, I, suppose, I suppose historically I've been much more pessimistic. I'm not sure that's true. I suppose, I suppose early on, I was, I was hopeful I could find a technical solution to most problems. I was like the AA man that could fix your car almost at the side of the road. Uh, then I realised that I couldn't and that most cars actually weren't broken. They just weren't doing the thing that we thought they should be doing. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. So, so, you know, with cars, it doesn't work. But with systems, it does work. If people say the system's broken. No, the system's perfect. You, you know, you need to remake the system if you want to give it different results. If we've got a, a highly centralised hierarchy and it's turning out people that are doing as they're told i can't just tell people not to do what they're told i've got to deconstruct the hierarchy so so i started off being optimistic that there were technical solutions i then realized there weren't technical solutions uh, but that didn't make me pessimistic i suppose because i just had a family to feed and a mortgage to pay and so I just went through the, the motions of collusion now i'm much more likely to think yeah the mountain has a sunny side but on the other side of the mountain it's dark and it's foggy and it's cold and which side of the mountain am I on? And maybe I can get around the other side of the mountain. And I'm much more interested in going around the mountain than I'm going to the top of the mountain. Yeah, Shakespeare said, there's nothing good or bad, but I think he makes it so. It was something like that, wasn't it? He said, yeah, he said um, but what if there's nothing good or bad? It just is. I think you're right. You just, yeah, it is the way it is. You are the way you are. Let's... Well, and we know that you can change that. You know, learned optimism. You can learn optimism. Why bother? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure optimists are any happier than pessimists, are they? That's why there's bound to be some evidence somewhere that says they live longer. But Anthony Bourdain didn't live very long, had a brilliant life. You know, why do we? I was sort of lost for words with the thinking. I was trying to work it out. Perhaps I should have said what you would say, is I'm not sure. I need to think about this one. I think I've had a little bit more time to think about it. I've been practicing meditation for, for, for many years and I've got really, I've, I've moved more to, towards the mindful side of things rather than I used to do transcendental. But with the mindful thing, there's an assumption, and I know this is probably Buddhism, you'll probably know more than me, but there's an assumption that at a base level, all the things are there, the focus, the lack of focus, you know, the patience, the impatience, that's already there. So the pessimism's already there, the optimism's already there, the cynicism's already there, the, you know, etc. And you just you, you just have a choice of tapping into it. You're nodding away here. Have I have I have I cracked the secret of the meaning of life here? Go oh, no, I think, I think you're right. I, I mean I've gone to the Gestalt position which says, well what, what are you foregrounding? I can foreground the optimism, I can foreground the pessimism. I can foreground the love, I can foreground the hate. So you know the notion of a foreground and a background. Yeah, it is all there. It's all just perfect. Um well actually it's all in the field of non-concepts. It's that bloody field again. We've got, we've got this tiny little window of concepts to draw on like optimism and pessimism love and hate beyond that there is this massive opening of non-concepts and i suppose that's the thing that i'd be trying to hold on to is i stand on this little island of concepts mike on his island of concepts the love island the love island, island of concepts yeah where you get voted on or off by the viewers <laughs> i realized we, we didn't talk about in intention you see what are you foregrounding that to me sounds like having intention, you know, I, I choose to be focused, I choose to be patient, I choose to be optimistic and all these things. Yet, you were talking, you talk a lot about in, in your study of ethics, you mentioned on a podcast, this idea of following the muse instead, and you're letting go of intention, just, just feeling your way into it maybe. So should we be thinking about intention and choice or should we just be, you know, what happens, what is, is? Uh, so, so my problem with intentions is that in order to set an intent, which for me is, 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 a desire for the future so my intention as, as i move forward into the future my intention is to be kind loving whatever it kind of assumes a power and a knowledge over the unfolding of the present that i don't have control so if my intention is to eliminate inequalities that's my intent i'm going to set that goal now in 10 years there'll be no more health inequalities anyone with an ounce of knowledge would say well an arrogant ass you'll never do it and they'd be right because we cannot control the future. Now, you know, I can set an intent to go in and um, have a loving conversation with my wife. But if the first thing she does is say, you know, you left the Lucy up again, you haven't walked the dogs and you've given the cats the wrong food. So when we set intents, is it an act of 
arrogance? Is it an act of a lack of humility? Is it a lack of being willingness to accept? I want to say delusion of control because I, you know, I, I want to prepare and control, but it is a delusion. Sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the delusion of control and 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 the false security that we uh, pretend we have in that delusion of control is massive. And I'm now trying to think through, well, what's the relationship between letting go of control and letting go of intent? Well, listen, so if I go in there saying I want this loving conversation and the first thing I do is get my ear chewed off, right? Uh, there's going to be guilt, there's going to be shame, oh, I didn't manage to fulfil my intent again, blah, 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 blah. If I just go in there and say whatever happens is perfect, if I met with a beautiful welcome or if I met with a whatever is just perfect, then I'm much more likely to probably handle that with equanimity than if I go in with some false projection of how I want it to be, some imagined projection. Now, what I do think is helpful is for me to think, okay, when I go into that kitchen, I know how, you know, I know how I'd like it to be. I'd like it for there not to be me being told off for lifting the Lucy up, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, don't leave the bloody Lucy up then. You know, <laughs> get, get your basic disciplines and habits right. Take it as learning. Don't take it as criticism. Don't take it as an attack. Take it as, ah, oh, yeah. As my wife will say, 30 years of marriage and you still haven't learned. Having intent and then thinking, how do I get my mindset right now? You know, what do I need to do to leave this part of my world, the desk, the office, the space, the plants, the heater, the lights, the, what do I need to do to leave this space, take the 10 paces up the garden, open the kitchen door, so that when I open that kitchen door, I'm no longer thinking about bloody metaphysics with Chris Kenworthy and the nature of reality. I'm going to go and be half decent husband. So I suppose there is something. Is that preparation? I suppose it is, really. I've got a feeling this is a work in progress. You're, you're figuring this one out, aren't you, still? This is... I'm figuring it all out, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> On your little island. None of it. Yeah. yeah. Deepening understanding, you know, deepening understanding. Rather than figuring it out, deepening understanding. So, you know, I will do it for many years. It's a, it's a trick I nicked off of uh, the, the guy who wrote Nine and a Half Ways to Be a Complete and Utter Failure, Steve, forget his name now. Anyway, he, he taught me that, you know, when you come home from a really, really difficult day, um, you know that you're going to open the door and the kids are going to jump at you and the dog's going to jump at you and you're knackered and frustrated and exhausted and you're going to be a lousy dad. When you know that's going to happen, just pull up 100 yards before the house Remind yourself that's going to happen. Remind yourself how you want to be, and then be it. You know, when the kids throw themselves at you, pick them up. When the dog throws, you know. Now it's not. Well, is it that? Is it about intention? Is it about preparation, or is it just about being open to that gear change? I don't know. I found that an immensely helpful technique. Mm -hmm. The number of times I parked up a hundred yards short. Maybe that's trying to open yourself up to be caring. But then that's a form of preparation, isn't it? I have feel compelled to mention this. That the background to me tr transitioning from being the consultant to the coach has led me to a space where I'm moving from being expert, answer giver and provider to being beginner learner space again. And we, we, we've spoken about that in your, your progress school things. This idea of coming into a situation, just going, I can't answer this and nor am I coming in to find the answers to this because maybe there aren't any. That's a deeply thrilling but unsettling thought. Yeah. Mystery, mm. admitting mystery, admitting all. I think that's something we've not been very good at. We've pretended that we can solve all the problems. You know, as a species, uh, we can do no wrong. We're the top of the evolutionary tree, don't you know, Chris? Apparently so, un until COVID came along and reminded us all we're not, yeah. Well, and, and again, the modern biologists say, no, if you want to look at, you know, bacteria, they've been around 150 billion years. They've figured out how to survive, you know, mass extinctions, holocausts they can survive nuclear bombs you, you know if the most advanced life form is the one that can persist for longest in the greatest number if if that ain't us you know we will probably there'll be probably some form of intelligence in a few millennia time that look back and say those humans they were interesting for a while <laughs> but not for very long there'll be a very thin line in the in the fossil record i think i found the um the gallows humour, Mike, isn't it? It's like I feel a chasm up, and it's maybe our time's up. You know, maybe we, maybe we thought we had the answer, and we've deluded ourselves, and and we're face to face now with the fact that there is no answer, and we can't answer it. And it's imagine being the last East Islander. You know, when you realise your great civilization, you're the last, you're, you're the last white rhino. You know, an urgency can be an interesting thing, can't it? Fear can be an interesting driver. I mean, I'm 
I'm not without optimism. This is really interesting. Um, I'm a bit over overstayed, but I, don't, I have no more questions. I'm, I'm. You have no more questions. I've I answered them all. No questions. <laughs> I've not learned anything, have I? It's hard to get the answers. We are so programmed, Chris. You, you know, how do I package up? How to make it useful? What are the answers? Yeah, what yeah. do I do with this? And again, the work I'm doing on care ethics. The ethic of care says, as soon as you know what you're going to do with this, you've stopped caring. Yeah. Because you now have a plan that you're going to implement. You assume that you are the master of the universe. You can make it work. As soon as you go into that, and it, I mean, it's not quite that black and white, but that utilitarian approach, oh, I know what I'm doing now. I've got a plan. The, the thing I've noticed that, that really excites me about coaching is, is not getting to that place with someone. It's seeing a sudden, they can suddenly access energy or there's a sudden renewed momentum. They're engaged in the process of learning again. That that excites me because they may never find the answer to the problem that they that they're trying to answer, but they've got momentum and they're rolling along and they're going somewhere. That in itself is in is success. Do you know Eddie Oveng's work? No, who's this? Sorry. He talks about he talks about there being four types of projects. The first one is a painting by number project. Um, so literally, you've got the picture there, the numbers, and you've got the paints here all numbered, painting by numbers. You know, within the first hour, you'll know how long it's going to take you to finish the painting. You'll have a reasonable painting at the end of it. And some projects are like that. They're painting by numbers. So actually, re reducing infection rates on a ward is in some ways a painting by numbers project. We know how to do it. We can standardise it. He then says the next kind of project is more like making a film, making a movie. So you've got a brilliant studio, you've got a great cast, brilliant camera, you've got all you need. The only thing you haven't got is a script. So I've got I've got all of these qualities and skills and abilities. I've got the unique me that is Chris Kenworthy. I've got my mates, I've got my pal. What's it for? What's the story? How do I make a great film? Completely different kind of project. And you know, if you're painting by numbers, you can tell your funders, yeah, your painting will be done by lunchtime. If you're making a movie, When's the film going to come out? I don't know. I've not got a script yet. You know, uh, Pixar might take a decade to take a lousy script and turn it into a good one. You know, so we've got a very different creative process going on. The third kind of project he talks about is uh, going on a quest. So I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the answer. I'm looking for enlightenment. I'm looking for nirvana. I'm looking for £100,000 on a chief exec job. I just haven't got a clue how to get there. Now, I think Progress School helps with that kind of project a bit. And it might help people recognise they're trying to make a movie as well. It might help them recognise that they're in that territory and therefore this won't help. But this is this kind of um, quest for the Holy Grail. And then the fourth kind of project, which is probably, if we're honest, the kind of project we're all in, he calls Walking in the Fog. We don't know where we're going. We don't really know where we've been. We know we're lost and it's a dangerous place. When we're walking in the fog, the best thing we can do is stick together and move slowly with great care. I find it really reassuring that the, that the recommended response to walking in the fog would be to, yeah, pull together, tread slowly and carefully. That, that feels good. Yeah, like, let's let go of the impatience and the urgency to find the end destination. You know, be gentle and ease into it. And why is there a hurry? Why do we need to get there so quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, that's it. Whoa, someone lasted the full show. Well done. Congratulations for listening. You get the secret voucher code for unlimited wealth and success. All you need to do is rate the show in your podcast app to reassure me that this project isn't just another bunch of privileged Westerners feathering the wall of their elaborate self-ordered echo chamber. I'll see you on Twitter at Chris underscore Kenworthy or suggest a guest by emailing podcast at chriskenworthy.co.uk. Bye for now and thanks for listening.